so this is lesson 14 chapter 14 grace abounds um, top of the page top of page two there in holy baptism um, last time we talked about true or false a baptism performed by an unbeliever is invalid um, that is false um, although it is it is our preference that baptism be performed by believers um, because God wants his word to be handled by people who treasure that word. Um, and then the other one, baptism that is performed by a person who isn't a pastor is invalid. Um, that, is also, that is also false um, because the power of baptism is in the word. Um, but it's another case where it is still preferable that a that a pastor baptize um, because a Christian is a member of a church. And as members of a church, um, the church has called the pastor to make use of the keys on their behalf, including the administration of the sacraments. Um, and so baptism is never a private thing. Um, Holy Communion is never an, you know, a purely individual thing either, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, that baptism is, isn't a private thing it, because the keys and the sacraments belong to the church. Um, therefore, they aren't to be just used by individuals privately within the confines of their own home. They're supposed to be used as a church. Um, and so if, if somebody is baptized, like in the hospital or, you know, like we talked about last time, the hypothetical scenario, which is less hypothetical than, um, than we, than most people realize probably, of, you know, there's an emergency with this child who isn't born and in distress. Well, yes, baptize the child or um, have somebody in the room baptize the child. And you don't need to rebaptize. Um, but because it is, it is um, a happy thing for the church, and also because the keys belong to the church, it is a good thing to have an affirmation of the baptism in the church. Um, I think those things kind of go hand in hand because one of the, the lingering kind of behind the scenes, below the surface ideas is this question of authority. And, and as, as people, I don't know if it's uniquely American, Canadians have it too, <laughs> in my experience pastoring there, um, that, that we don't like the idea of being under another authority or being accountable to another authority. Um, you know, that was that was a case where I talked to a member once and they were like, well, you know, I don't have to listen to you because my relationship is with is with Jesus. And um, and, you know, there's a whole lot you could go on there. But at the end of the day, yes, you you should listen to me. And if you think that your relationship with Jesus is external to or apart from your confession of faith within a congregation, which has its own pastor, then there are there's a lot of fish to fry here and we don't have enough oil. Right. Um, so I guess that that more or less um, it is valid to have a baptism that is performed by who's not a pastor. Um, it is preferable when possible to have the pastor do it. There is, emer there is a case of emergency baptism. Um, and, and that when we do have an emergency baptism, we, you know, follow through with, you know, full practice, you know, that's proper practice. Um, the two notes that I, that I had, uh, had jotted down to talk about, first of all, any other lingering questions on baptism? I jotted down uh, two, but are there any others that we should talk about first? I think Ron had one. Yeah, yeah. The question, um, you know, more broadly, um, the question is baptism absolutely necessary or is baptism simply necessary? Um, absolutely necessary, meaning you have to have baptism, and if you are not baptized, then you were not saved necessary meaning we should do it um but if we you know overlooked it or it weren't able to then that's you know that isn't going to exclude somebody from heaven um and usually when we get these questions of is something absolutely necessary versus is it necessary um you know the example of the the thief on the cross is um is usually the the description that comes up and, um, you know, for, for better or for worse, you know, when we talk about the thief on the cross, um, keeping him within histor historical context, what do we know about him? Um, obviously, 
yeah, he, he was not Roman because Romans couldn't be crucified. They were beheaded if they were convicted, a la the Apostle Paul. St. Peter, on the other hand, was not a Roman citizen, and so St. Peter was crucified. Um, so we know that this man is not a Roman. He is um, posted along, <laughs> lack of a better word, um, he is placed at the one of the roadways coming into the city on you know one of the biggest festivals of the year, one of the three times when all the Israelites were supposed to be there. Um, and he is condemned to death. And we hear that Jesus, you know, at the beginning, he was, um, he was heaping insults on Jesus. And then later on, he rebuked the other one. Don't you know we're under the same punishment? And Jesus answers, today you'll be with me in paradise, which was a two-part promise. Number one, your suffering isn't going to last that long. You'll be dead before sundown. Um, so it's not going to be like three days and you, got your, you can't hit your nose and the birds are coming to poop on your head or whatever. Um, and the fact, yeah, or, or worse things, um, and the fact that he would be with him in paradise, meaning that this, this thief had, you know, a specific explicit word from Jesus that he would be going to heaven. So when we talk about the thief on the cross, um, the question of is baptism absolutely necessary or is baptism only necessary? Um, the other things that kind of come into play, the fact that he's not Roman and he's being crucified outside of Jerusalem on Passover week, would it's a, it's a, a good bet that he is a Jewish man, um, which means that he had probably, which it would explain where his knowledge of these things came from, his knowledge of the events, um, as he watches and hears that he had at least had some synagogue training, that he had been circumcised as a child. And, and we also know, um, just generally speaking, that many of the people that Jesus ministered to during his lifetime or who converted from Judaism to Christianity um, may, have, may have done so and passed away without having been baptized. Um, and so it, it at least gets us into the door of that question. Um, yes. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much where we where we end up. That um, the thief on the cross, let's just say he was circumcised, and um, most likely, and Jesus told him he would be in heaven. The bigger question is: Is baptism absolutely necessary? So, if you look at Mark sixteen verse fifteen, or Mark sixteen verse fifteen and sixteen, if you have your Bible nearby, um, you'll notice what Jesus says there in that uh, the the longer ending of Mark. Um, and so there is, there's a little bit of discussion on the longer ending of Mark, like where did this originate and, um, and how, how did it get incorporated, um, specifically here at the ending of Mark? Um, the, I guess the two part answer to that is, uh, number one, I think it is very plausible and there's some good textual evidence to think that. There were two separate copies of the book of Mark circulating around, um, one of which had a shorter ending and one of which had a, had a longer ending. Um, and then secondly, the other thing that we see from uh, the longer ending of Mark is that there's nothing established as doctrine in Mark um, in those last verses. And, and so we don't use anything from that last section of Mark as a, what we would call a sedes doctrine, um, a seat of doctrine. But if you look at uh, Mark 16, I think it's verse 15, or maybe it's verse 16. And he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So pretty straightforward. <laughs> and, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
Um, so at least on the basis of, of that verse and, and what we see from example, uh, description throughout the rest of the New Testament, that, um, that what is it that gets a person to heaven? Well, the fact that Jesus took away their sin. How does, how does that... Um, how does that how does that righteousness become your own is through faith um and so what does baptism do baptism marks you as a redeemed child of christ child of god and baptism is what god uses to create faith or to strengthen faith um and so if you look at this let's see where are we looking exactly yeah verse 16 verse 16 um, he's, he doesn't say whoever does not believe and, and or whoever is not baptized will be saved. He says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, um, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And it's easy to focus on the first half of that and say, oh, if I want to be saved, I must believe and be baptized. Um, I think it, it, it's, it's also plausible, possible, good to focus on the second half. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, and that, and so what is the condition for salvation? Well, belief. Um, belief will necessarily mean whenever and wherever possible that a person will be baptized. Is it possible that, you know, somebody is on his or her deathbed and, um, and, you know, you finally get a chance or, you know, that person finally wants to talk about spiritual matters and you get to provide a witness to Christ. And in the, in the three minutes that it takes, um, after that to, you know, to talk, to get to baptism, uh, that the person passes away. Yeah, that's entirely po possible. Um, so baptism is not absolutely necessary um, because we we have you know all the the people in the the interim, you know the middle, you know first century or so of the Christian church. Um, we'll leave those up to God. You know, God God is the one who judges and, and sees hearts. Um, but what we see from Matthew 16, verse 16, is that baptism, baptism is not absolutely necessary. However, baptism is necessary because, um, because the faith wants all the gifts that, that Jesus gives. And Jesus says, do this. And so, and he promises to bless us through it. Um, and so the question usually isn't, um, is baptism absolutely necessary? The question behind that is usually, do I have to be baptized? Um, and do I have to have your understanding of baptism for it to count for me? Um, and, and usually it's, it's the question of understanding of what baptism is and what baptism does that you eventually get to. So is baptism absolutely necessary? No. Is it necessary? Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So it's this regular, everyday reminder in your life as a Christian that you get to have um, because of that external word over your head, water poured on you. And it's the same with the Lord's Supper. So you want that forgiveness. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we, we've touched on that previously. Um, I know we did last year in like April or maybe March, um, that, that baptism is, is an anchor of certainty. Um, and that even when talking about like Protestant, Protestant Christians, you've got Lutherans in the middle. On the one hand, you've got Armenians um, who are like the Billy Graham, come and make your altar call and give your life to Jesus, who think that their conversion is their work and they will talk about their conversion date and time, like it was April 14th in the basement of that church at the edge of town, 1984. Um, and their certainty that they are a Christian is grounded in the idea that that was a real experience. I experienced real emotions, and therefore, that is how I know that the Holy Spirit created faith in my heart. 
So for the Arminian, um, it's the experience and the emotion attached to it that is the proof that they are a Christian and that God has acted in their life. For the Calvinist, um, the you know general Calvinist says God chose some to go to heaven, God chose some to go to hell, and so the only way that I can know that I'm a Christian, um, you know, I can't peer into that hidden will of God, as they call it. Um, the only way I can know is by my life of good works, and so if I do enough good things, that will show that I am a Christian. And then I'll get the affirmation from my Christian community or from myself to say, I must be a Christian because look at what I do. Um, so for the Arminian, the certainty is, is an emotional experience and my recollection of that emotional experience. For the Calvinist, the certainty is my action and, and how I judge that action. You'll notice two things. Uh, first of all, that there is no certainty for babies children, young ones, in Arminianism or in Calvinism. Um, you know, you can't say, well, you know, our, our, if somebody's like three-month-old baby passes away, dies, and it's a, you know, terrible, horrible thing. Um, and, and all you'll hear from the Arminian or, or the Calvinist is, well, God is, God is love, God is mercy, yada, 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 flowers, daisies, and butterflies. Um, what you hear from a Lutheran is this child was baptized. Like the promise of God is attached to baptism, water ran off that kid's head. We dried him off and he was screaming like he was, like he was reborn, right? Um, Cause that's what babies do often. And, um, and so there's certainty there. So number one, the Arminian and the Calvinist have no, have nothing for the, for the young. All they can say is, well, you know, it's an age of innocence and God doesn't hold them accountable. Cross your fingers, roll the dice, good luck, right? Um, and the other thing is that, you know, when you get into the, the question of predestination, which we'll get into in a, in a chapter or two, is how do you know that you are one of God's elect? Um, you know, at least one certain way is the fact that you're baptized. That there in your baptism, God was serious in in doing good things for you, in this case, creating faith. And, and he was serious in bringing out his promise from before time began and bringing that into your life as your own personal possession. Questions? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Jesus actually says, do this. Um, and, and for the believer, we realize that we're not doing this to, to merit, you know, forgiveness for the bad that, th that we have done. You're not, you know, hosting a mass so that you can, you know, have all these people commune with you in this mass and then um, work up, you know, a treasury of merits, like the Catholic idea. Um, but the Christian is says, yes, I, I love to do what my Lord commands me to do. And on top of it, that he promises to bless it. This is fantastic. This is like a no lose situation here. Right. Um, and, and in that sense, it's, it's the, the sanctified Christian heart sees, you know, worship, um, Holy communion, Holy baptism, prayer, um, fellowship together as, as all under the same canopy that these are things that yeah, they are necessary. They are things that, that your beloved Lord Jesus has commanded for you to do, and he promises to bless them. And there is no way that you're going to be missing out and losing out when we make use of these things. Definitely. And so, you know, sometimes, um, you know, there's one, one case, um, thinking back to a previous church where the, you know, the, the father and the family didn't want their baby baptized. Um, you know, at least not yet, maybe when he's like two or three or six or pick a number. And, um, and it was before my time there, but the memory was still fresh. And he ended up um, being placed on the father ended up being placed under church discipline and then removed from the church under discipline. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about church discipline when we when we get there too. Um, and because he refused to baptize his babies, 
his, his kids, refused to have his kids baptized. Um, and especially in that point, when you're talking about children, um, baptism is similar to a, a parallel to circumcision in that it's the sacrament of initiation, um, the sacrament that, that marks somebody as a member of the nation of Israel, uh, the sacrament that, that marks and makes a person um, a member of the body of Christ. Any other questions on baptism? Yeah, good question. Um, so a baby is baptized and then uh, for whatever reason that the child is not instructed or um, or the parents, you know, show up to church for the baptism that one day and then that's it. Um, that's never happened. <laughs> so I don't know why that's just good. Yeah, not to joke about serious matters. Um, that's where I think the the practice of of sponsors um, or at least somebody from the congregation who will take spiritual responsibility for this child, you know, as kind of the backstop to make sure that, you know, mom or dad doesn't get so caught up in the idea of I need my downtime and, and, uh, or whatever the case may be, you know, that's when they hear that I hear the most, I guess, um, that at large, the church has a responsibility to those that it has baptized. Um, I think that's that's one that we overlook. Um, and to say, you know, here, here are the list of the people that we baptized this year. Um, and so we have a responsibility when they when they aren't coming to worship, um, not to just, you know, beat them over the head with a club, but to say, well, beginning with, um, we haven't seen you in a while, is everything okay? Um, so there, there is that. And what if that child um, is never instructed in the faith, you know, as a child? Um, then, you know, that child, what we know about faith is true also in the case of that child, that God isn't going to miraculously, um, or God hasn't promised to miraculously maintain a faith when that faith is separated from the means of grace. So that child is baptized that as a baby and, and never co any contact with the word of God or instruction in it, that child will, will lose his or her faith. Um, just like, you know, when I bring a plant home from the store and I water it on day one and then I leave it alone for the next four months, um, it's going to be dead. And, and that's, that's the case for, um, for, for baptism too. Um, so I, I think that that's our starting point because there, you know, that, that's, and the follow-up together with that is um, Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Luke um, about the parable of the servants, that the, the servant who um, did not know his master's business will be beaten with few blows when the master returns unexpectedly. Um, but the servant who did know the master's um, you know, orders, commands, and didn't do them, he is guilty of a greater sin, and he is beaten with many blows. Um, that whole, the whole greater, greater sin idea that's, I think that's also in the gospel of John and, um, and the book of Ezekiel. But the main idea there is that it's, it's worse for those who have faith and lose it than for those who never had faith at all. And so we don't want to, um, we want to have at least some, some concept that, you know, we're not baptizing these children behind the parents' back. The responsibility of the parent, the children's upbringing still lies with the parents, and we want the parents to take responsibility to make sure that these children are instructed in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, and that if we baptize somebody, then we have the clear word of God that he creates faith, and to to baptize them and then just say, go on your merry way, have a good life, um, and to not follow up with them or take an interest in their spiritual well-being, um, that's, that's spiritual malpractice. Um, and that's the, you know, that's on behalf of a congregation, you know, pastorally as well as individual members, um, that we, we take it seriously, that when we, we baptize somebody who wants to be baptized, um, and at the same time that we want to follow up with these people who have been baptized so that they receive the instruction that they need. Um, you know, at some point, the, the, the solution isn't 
necessarily <laughs> there, there's always there's always nuances the solution isn't necessarily to go around the parents and say all right well grandma and grandpa are gonna take the kid to church you know twice a month and grandma and grandpa are gonna bring the child to catechism every week um that may be a solution at some point but the better solution when a family had their child baptized and then the family is delinquent from um from church is to directly, you know, either pastorally or personally, or personally and then pastorally, um, rebuke that family and say, you know what, God, God did a miracle in life, your baby, and you're forfeiting it. Um, and if you continue on this path, not only um, have you have you consigned yourself to eternity in hell, but you've made it worse for the child, um, because that child. In holy baptism, God gave that child the knowledge of their salvation through Jesus Christ, and you're depriving them of their contact with the Jesus that they had been brought to love. Um, and how, however you phrase it, I mean, I think uh, as Christians, <laughs> um, to get in the practice of phrasing it as strongly as possible, and if you if you find it a little challenging to say, then you're then you're probably getting close to what you should be saying. Um, <laughs> at least at least in some cases and um not that we always lead with you know this person had their child baptized and then they've been out of church for 18 months and i'm just going to come in like you know with a with a hammer and the wrecking ball um i i i don't know that anybody would accuse me of that although they well i, I know a few people might but um but to say yeah but to say you know we care about you we want good for you um that that jesus has promised to do good things in holy baptism we miss seeing you at church is there any way that we can help support you with where you're at now what's going on um is it is it just work schedules should we add another service at another time because the husband's working monday through friday like 12 hour days and the wife is working on Saturday and Sunday, like 12 hour days, you know, who knows? Um, which obviously will open all sorts of doors to further conversation if they're open to it. And if they're, if you start with some openness to and concern that can open the door to say, okay, here's what actually is going on. And that opens, you know, opens up the pathway to say, here's what we actually can and should do to help. And on the surface, it might look like, okay, family A, child baptized, haven't been in church in, in two years. Child B, baptized, also hasn't been in church in two years. You might end up with two different things that you do for each of those particular families um, based on the unique circumstances. Um, because, and that's where, you know, I say like policy precedent and poll make for bad practice. That we don't just come up with a policy that if you haven't been in church for 15, 15 months in a day, then we do this. And if you haven't been in church for 17 months in a day, then we do that. Um, but that it, and that's the last part is that it takes time. Um, you know, it takes usually like three or four tries to get a hold of somebody. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, maybe two or three conversations or meetings after that, depending. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that, you know, pastorally, um, I would say probably on average, most of the pastors in our synod would, would baptize a baby after meeting with the parents once or twice and talking with them and um, about what baptism is and are you serious about raising this child in the Christian faith? Um, why are you being baptized? Are you just being, you know, pestered by a family member to get the child baptized and you got to get this monkey off your back? Um, or is it that you've, you've heard about baptism, you're baptized as a child, and this is something that you know is, is a good thing that God promises to bless. Um, and I think you also brought up a good point, you know, talking about a Christian community, that generationally, um, if somebody has a Christian in their family tree, they at least have an example they can think back to. Like, you know, grandma was there every week. Um, grandma was in the hospital and the first person that she had me call was, was Pastor Hagen, um, as opposed to all of their other friends who are spending so much time and energy doing things of, of no lasting value, um, but that leave them tired and exhausted at the end of the day. And, um, and, you know, like some of the later minor prophets talk about, you know, um, that you, you're spending all of your time and all of your energy and all you're doing is making bigger holes in your purses and, and you still don't have the means to make ends meet. Um, maybe there's something else going on here. Um, and, and I guess that's where a Christian congregation and a Christian community can, could, uh, potentially be a place where, um, somebody new to the faith interacts with Christians and begins to see, oh, there is something different about this. And how do they, you know, structure their life? How do they interact with their kids? Um, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's that's a fantastic example of um, you know one of the ways that a church could um, kind of spontaneously just have you know people that are at the same or a similar stage in life or whatever it is, and they have the same set of natural concerns, um, and hopefully you know the Christian has a little bit more guidance or insight um, and you know, having, you know, developing some deeper, deeper connections that way. Um, I think that's definitely a good thing. It, uh, it does bring to mind, you know, like one of our churches in downtown Milwaukee, um, they, <laughs> I, it's been a while since I heard about this, but probably about 12 years. Um, but they've got a, a large church of like, I don't know, 800, 1200, something like that fairly sizable. <laughs> and so they, they do like three services on a Sunday morning, plus one on a Saturday and like one on a Monday. And, and they try to try to do what they can to encourage people to get to know each other at those services, like pick a service, find one that works for you and sit in the same spot. So you get to know the people sitting near you. Um, with the intention of more or less creating clicks within the congregation, yeah, building smaller churches within within this church. Yeah, so you can so you can function and carry out the things because um, it's like that's why it's really nice for a lot of people who maybe if you've been de church for a long time, you can go to a church where they've they've got a thousand people there, 
or even even 300 and then you're just one face in the crowd but if you're one of one of 80 and pastor knows your your name and remembers your name or you know had somebody prompt him for your name yeah yeah we don't want to be cheers we don't want to replace like the local bowling alley like that yeah, you know, where everybody knows your name. Um, but there is something intimidating that in, in a church of, you know, 80 to 80 to 104 people on a Sunday, that that you stand out as somebody who is, um, could be potentially different. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot to, to add other than that, that it also gets into the, the broader question of, of the way our society, at least in my opinion, has been has been pulled apart by our schooling schedules, our work schedules, by inflation and by by zoning. <laughs> but that is that that is that is a, an extended discussion for another time. If you want a, pr a primer on that, check out the book um, Bowling Alone. Um, it was kind of the first book that talked about the disintegration of American neighborhoods and communities. Um, as evidenced by the the bowling leagues of you know maybe the 60s 70s 80s whatever it is just kind of 90s disappeared uh, so bowling alone would give you more about that than pastor Hagen wants to talk about right now <laughs> um, anything else on baptism we talked about method, uh, we talked about people we talked about um, any other conditions talked about who does the baptizing um, what is valid and what is preferable. I think that is pretty much everything. Gets us into the Lord's Supper. <laughs> All right. Lord's Supper. How many things are present and received in the Lord's Supper? And how do you know? Let's start. How many things are present and received by mouth in the Lord's Supper? Crystal says four. All right, I'm reading your mind, and I think you're correct. What are those four? All right, bread and wine, body and blood. <laughs> Forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. That's three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, and, and so in that, how many things are present and received? Um, you could even tighten that up, that, that question up a little bit more, received by mouth in the Lord's Supper. Because the Calvinists, um, for 450 years, they love squishy terminology. And nobody, like, comes down the street, few people <laughs> come down the street carrying a sign basically saying, I'm a heretic. Um, and this would be one example of in the 1560s and 1570s in, in Germany, Lutheranism was almost wiped out by Calvinists who used words that Lutherans agreed with. And they, that the, the Calvinists said, oh yeah, every, every person who comes to the table receives Christ, um, receives Christ in his fullness in, together in, with, and under the bread and wine. Um, and it was, it was actually, yeah, it's called the crypto-Calvinistic controversy. And it, it prompted the, you know, it was one of the things that prompted the writing of the Formula of Concord. Uh, so if you have your book of Concord at home, or we have some here if you don't have one, um, go to the Formula of Concord part and then read the history to that. It's fascinating. I don't remember it all, but it was like as close as you get to cloak and dagger skullduggery in Lutheran history. Um, and so the, the question that really outed the Calvinists in this was reception by mouth because the calvinists would say oh yeah every person receives christ in, in the lord's supper that they're up there you go and get bread and wine and then the calvinist idea is they have a deficient christology that that they say well jesus is fully god and he is fully man but he can't be in more than one place at once just as you or i can't be in more than one place at once because he's he's a he's man um and, you know, that's where I always add as the footnote that the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, are Calvinists in their theology. And Calvinist theology then would say, well, Jesus is up in heaven and we're down here. And so Jesus can't actually be present in the Lord's Supper because he's up in heaven. He's confined in heaven um, and we're down here. 
Yeah. And so the Calvinists would say, and they, they came out with their own order of service, and the Calvinistic ruler said, this is what all of the Protestant churches should use. And, um, and it was terminology that the Lutherans were like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that works. It's a little bit different than we're used to, but we're good. And, um, and then it was finally outed that, oh, it was basically the Calvinist ruler cooperating with Calvinist theologians to try to overthrow the Lutheran churches and more or less exterminate Lutheranism uh, by force by compelling them to use wording that was, that they didn't, you know, didn't set off any alarm bells. Um, and so the Calvinists would say in the Lord's Supper, you, you eat and you drink and your soul ascends to heaven to commune with Christ. And so the Lutherans said, okay, but what do you receive by mouth? What do you receive by mouth? Is <laughs> uh, Christ's body and blood and the bread and the wine. In, with, and under. Um, is it in? Yes. Is it with? Yes. Is it under? Yes. Can you see it? No. <laughs> Can you put it under a microscope? No. And see it? Um, and even with the wafers that Pastor Hagen has chosen to buy, we don't buy the, the wafers with like the image of Christ on the cross imprinted on it. Uh, we just get the simple wafers that have a little cross on it. Um, not that it's a huge deal, but you know, if I'm the one buying them, they're then I'll buy the ones with just the cross because if you just have this picture of here's Jesus imprinted on this wafer, that is a really small Christ. <laughs> and and it it could lead to a you know thinking of Jesus and communion too little. Uh, rather than the fullness and leaving it at, at least ambiguous enough in the artwork of the wafer um, to say that, you know, here's your Lord, that he promises to be in with and under. Um, I know that's getting kind of like all the all the tiny little picky details. Um, in our area, so if you do they are. Yeah. They're everywhere. Um, I usually call, you know, pretty much every church that is not Lutheran um, has some form of ABC theology, ABC um, Armenian Baptist Calvinist. Um, no, they're, they're Armenian. They, they kind of straddle the fence. So it's just easy to remember as ABC. Um, and that's all your community churches. That's the Baptist church, you know, first Baptist, second Baptist, third Baptist, whichever one you go to. So the question, you know, we, we had the believer receives by mouth Christ's body and blood together with bread and the wine. What does the unbeliever or the unrepentant receive by mouth when he or she comes to the table and it is communed? <laughs> Trouble. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. Yeah, so believer and unbeliever, um, even even a child um, receives by mouth in in holy communion the exact same thing because it's there by virtue of Christ's promise, Christ's body and blood together with bread and the wine. Um, that was that was you know one instance sometime in the past decade um, where a, a mother had brought her child up and the child was starting to get antsy during the the closing blessing and. Um, and the mother just handed her little individual cup to the baby or this little child and thinking nothing of it, just hand the babe, the, the kid, whatever he needs so that he calms down and doesn't make a scene right here. Like I get it. Um, I, well, I don't, I shouldn't say that I do. Um, and, and so I, I yeah, that, that was like, well, t t time out your child. Do you know what you're doing? Your child doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and so what we have, we have every person receives all four things, Christ's body and blood together with the bread and the wine. The believer, the one who comes in faith, the one who is, comes in repentance, which is faith, um, receives the spiritual blessing of forgiveness. The unbeliever, the one who comes in impenitence, um, the one who has no intention whatsoever to stop their hidden sin, I don't care what it is, um, that person puts himself or herself under God's discipline, under God's judgment. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 11, you have um, the word discern. I like the way the, uh, some of the ways that the King James did it there. Um, the word is diacrino, um, which is discern. So crino is to judge, diacrino is to judge more thoroughly. Um, and so it comes pretty much directly into English as discern, the one who does not discern the Lord's body and blood. Um, or you could say judge, the one who does not recognize is 
the same basic idea, but it's not as um, strong, I guess. Um, and so as, as part of our uh, practice of the Lord's Supper, then we, we want to, you know, ensure that we are coming in faith. And well, that's why we instruct you. That's why we, you know, every three or four times a year go through personal preparation for Holy Communion. And that's why every single communion service, whether private, you know, I come to visit, commune somebody in the hospital or, or public, uh, begins with the confession of sins, confession of absolution. Um, and yeah. Yeah. There, there are, there are some in the, I don't know if they've been disciplined and corrected or not. Um, I don't keep up with that in the very ultra conservative Missouri Synod, um, which was also kind of the ultra conservative, um, wing of the Wisconsin Synod up in the Livonia, Southeast Michigan circuit. Um, probably about 15, 20 years ago, let's say 20 years ago, um, who were advocating for, and in some cases, even practicing um, communion of their infants. And in that case, what they, they predicated communion on faith. Um, and they set up a straw man argument that said, yeah, that, that faith will discern itself. They set up a straw man argument that said, um, if if you say that I cannot commune my infant, then you're denying that baptism creates faith. Because, and then, because their baseline argument was the only requirement for Holy Communion is faith. And that's true, but Paul also talks about discerning the body and blood of the Lord and discerning oneself. It's the same word, to judge the body and blood of the Lord so you know what's going on here. Uh, you've been instructed in it and you're awake and, and aware and you're not, you know, you still have your mental faculties and that you are, have the ability to discern, to judge yourself, which is to recognize, well, am I a sinner? Yes. Um, am I sorry for, am I repentant for my sin? Yes. Um, does Jesus promise forgiveness in the Lord's Supper? Yes. Does Jesus give me his body and blood for my forgiveness in the Lord's Supper? Yes. Um, and basically, if those four things are there, then somebody is is competent to to commune. Um, no, no, <laughs> yeah, and and so you know, I talked about this um, today uh, with a you know a household where they've got they've got an older daughter um, who um, you know isn't isn't quite at her age level, but she's you know very warm, affectionate, nice nice girl. And, um, and I had mentioned, you know, we should talk sometime if, if you'd like to see if, if this daughter would be apt, able for, you know, communion, confirmation. Um, and so they said, well, yeah, we'll talk to her. And, and they asked if that was something that she would like to do. And she said, yeah. And so we, I, I talked with them and we'll follow up with them more, of course. Um, but to say that if, if this child, um, if this young person has the ability to, even if it takes a little bit of coaching, like on the drive to church, well, today we've got Holy Communion. And you remember that in Holy Communion, Jesus gives you his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and, and, and then you participate in the confession of sins. Then, then that person is competent for communion, even if his or her mental faculties are not at what we would say in line with, you know, what their age is. Um, so then the question of who do you not commune? Well, we've established we don't commune infants because they don't have the ability to judge and recognize, um, you know, on their own, really, their own, their own sin, as well as the, to discern, to judge the the presence of Christ bodily and bloodily in, in the, in the sacrament. Um, we don't commune people who are in a coma, um, or who are asleep or who are not in possession of their mental faculties. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, 
sometimes I say very frankly, there will probably come a day, you know, if the Lord lets me live long enough, then chances are I'll start to get dementia of some sort. There will probably come a day when I'm still alive and I'm not eligible for communion anymore. Um, just knowing the, the rates of, you know, Alzheimer's or similar, where we, we, don't, we don't have any promise of good things happening when the person is not able to discern themselves and to discern what's going on that um that you know if we walk through some this with somebody and they don't they don't know the confession of sins or they don't they don't know what's going on um are you the nurse with their with their insurer or are you pastor with communion and it's a toss-up as to whether they know then that person isn't isn't eligible on the other hand um it it, it does happen sometimes where somebody has a good day and um and you walk and you're like i'm pastor hagan they're like hi pastor i haven't seen you in a while and i'm like yeah it has been like three weeks because sometimes people say i haven't seen you in a while i was here yesterday you know but um i'd say and then you get started and and that's why we follow an or a standard order of service you know when we visit somebody um because it helps them you know stay along with what we're doing and brings to mind the the worship that they've experienced for the last you know 40 50 60 years of their life and so if they're having a good day and um and they're like milt would you like to be commune today you know by that time i i i, I know what i would do i'm not going to ask somebody if i'm not going to commune them and and he says sure and then i'm like well, i'll commune you today um and then i come back another time and he might not be there, you know, have be in full possession of knowing where he is, what's going on. Um, but I guess that's, that's kind of the, the practice of it. Um, and so, and it has happened a few times where I go to visit somebody. This is why I usually like put, put my books and my community set in a bag so they don't see what I'm carrying with me. <laughs> and we're talking and I had planned on communing somebody and then it's like, well, you know, today's the day. So we'll just have a little devotion and then um, I'll, I'll say goodbye. So, oh boy, <laughs> that was, that was question number one and a lot more a lot about the practice of Holy Communion. Um, any other questions on, on Holy Communion? Um, we haven't talked on three communions or the true and false, um, or the, the three teachings on the Lord's Supper. What are the three communions, the three koino, koinoniae? Koino, communio, communae, three communions, the three fellowships. Um, the first is the communion or the fellowship, the sharing together. I guess that, that is a fantastic translation for it. If you read 1 Corinthians 11 um, and just substitute the, the sharing together um, of the, the elements with the body of Christ, um, where they are sharing sharing space they're in communion with one another um the contents of the cup are christ christ's blood together with the wine um so that's the the first communion uh the second communion is each individual believer with jesus um in the reception and then uh and by extension then i would say maybe even four communions um by extension then um the forgiveness of sins that has been because of that forgiveness of sins and the communion with jesus um then you know they stand as righteous in god's eyes um and then thirdly the communion among believers so that would be um if you think of it as like three separate drawings if you do like one circle with arrows like two two arrows going in a circle so that's the communion of the elements with the with the body and with the blood um, and then the horizontal is well the vertical is the second one between each believer and and his or her lord um and then the horizontal is the third um, among the believers who gather in communion together um and together with that you know that we practice something called closed communion um there's a strong push in the 90s to refer to it well, not as closed communion. That sounds so negative. Let's refer to it as close communion. Um, because if we just drop the D off, then it's a different word, right? Um, that it's close communion. And and really can't be close unless it's closed. 
right? <laughs> so let's 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 not play games about this. Let's not let's not be. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not. Yeah. Yes. He did not commune the 5,000. He did not, um, and even the Bread of Life discourse isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and he communed the 12, the 12 who were instructed, the 12 who by their confession um, were united in faith with him and were repentant. Um, because sometimes the other question that comes up, well, was, Luke, was, uh, was Judas there or not? Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians include the Holy Communion account in each of them. Luke makes it sound like, like, like Judas is there, or maybe that he isn't there. I think Luke makes it sound that he is there. Um, and John doesn't tell us. John just passes over that entirely. You know, he's writing like 30 years after everybody else, 40 years, and he's like, you guys got that covered. I'm going to talk about this other thing. Um, but the, the bottom line is that it, it doesn't matter if Judas was there or not because Jesus uses the same standard for communion as we do. That, that wasn't, but that wasn't, that wasn't Holy Communion. The dipping the bread in the dish is, was not the, it was Monday, Thursday. He was in the upper room, but he left at some point during the meal um, or after the conclusion of the meal. Uh, we don't know when exactly he left in comparison to, um, to when Jesus actually instituted Holy Communion. And what kind of complicates this, and other pastors have written and done a lot more study on it than I, but what kind of complicates it is that in the traditional, as far as we know, the traditional Passover feast of Jesus' day, there would be four separate times where they would use one of the four cups of wine in front of them um, as part of the part of the ceremony of the Passover meal. Um, and so we don't know necessarily which one of those four Jesus had used or in relation to that when Judas left. So it is possible that Jesus communed Judas and, um, and sometimes people use that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a visitor at your church, Pastor Hagen. I go to the ELCA church, but I don't believe what they believe. I want to commune with you today. And I'd say, well, no, because you're not united in faith with us. You haven't joined yourself in confession to us publicly. And so I kindly ask that you refrain just stay seated and if you come up then i'll skip over you um you know any combination of of those things that i just said and and usually the only comeback that people have to push back against closed communion is either well that's not loving or jesus communed judas so why does it matter um well really jesus shows us that he goes by the same standard that we use today our standard here at Resurrection Lutheran Church and standard Lutheran practice for 500 some years is to go by your confession. Um, are you united in confession with us? Is your confession that of a repentant Christian who believes the same thing as us? Then yes, we'll commune you. Um, and Judas, you know, as they, they all look around the table, surely not I, Lord, was it me? No, it can't be me. Um, Judas was concealing the fact that he had already decided to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So by his confession, he was united with the disciples. Um, and that's the standard that we use. You know, if somebody is, is hiding a private sin that they are completely, you know, nurturing and unrepentant of and, and not struggling with it in the least, um, you know, which, you know, obviously this comes up a lot. I, I said one time um, to our you know, when my, when our circuit pastor asked about um, a report, you know, for the circuit pastors meeting, they have like two meetings a year. And I said, you know what, I could just preach on Christology and Holy Communion for the rest of the rest of the calendar year. And that would probably be the best thing that I could do. Um, but he, he, he kind of chuckled, <laughs> his nervous chuckle. Yeah. And um and and not that I couldn't, but um, but I don't know if the congregation would particularly appreciate it to the to the same degree. Anyway, yeah, yeah.
And, and Peter would go on to deny Jesus and deny that he was going to deny Jesus uh, that very night. Um, yeah, and, and I guess that, that's good to remember because there's, yeah, time of grace isn't over until it is. Um, like there's one sermon where, uh, we're going to wrap up here in just a second, um, where I kind of took John, the gospel writer, to task, even though he wasn't there to defend himself. Where John writes, you know, Judas used to t used to pinch money from from the money bag and then use it for himself, and he was a thief, and we knew this. And it's like, John, what are you doing? Why didn't you rebuke him? You had the chance to call him back before before he completely lost his faith, and then before he eventually denied his his Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hindsight hindsight bias can be can be a strong one. Um, so anyway, I guess uh, that will that will wrap us up for tonight. Um, next time we'll pick up with the three different teachings on the Lord's Supper, and then um, and then true and false, and a myriad of other practical application, um, doctrine and practice kind of questions. Thank you very much.